0: Good morning again. Uh, You're stuck with me. So if you had hopes of leaving with the kids uh, to do all kinds of fun stuff, um, sadly, you're with me in the auditorium. Life for me and Sheree started off in South Africa. Um, My dad is Greek. Um, He comes from a little village up in the northern part of Greece called Kavala. Um, And he moved to South Africa when he was 25. Hence the really interesting spelling of my name, Ioannis or Yanni, uh, here's, here's one for you to try out. You should try being um, Ioannis Dekas from Doxadeo on a daily basis um, in London. I get to spell my name and my surname and the place I work for um, probably about 10, 15 times every single day um, that I get to do with people. But that's where life started off for me in Sheree. We moved uh, to a ministry 23 years ago became part of a ministry in Pretoria called uh, Doxa Deo. It means the glory of God, doxa, um, the Greek word glory, Deo, the Latin word God. And um, at that stage, we weren't really sure exactly what God was doing with us. Um, we weren't leading the church at that stage. I was actually the worship leader um, of um, the the, uh, the church at that stage, um, And over the period of about 10 years, we saw an incredible miracle happen across Pretoria. Um, One church multiplied into 13 different sites across the city um, with a total membership of about 20,000 people. Um, You would never say that because whenever you would go to one of the expressions, it would be a smaller experience of the presence of Jesus but the most important thing that happened in, this, in, in the church was our, the way we started viewing our responsibility in the city, because we no longer felt just to pastor a local church. We felt responsible for a city. We felt called to see a city transformed. And that had us venture down a number of avenues. Um, and the big story, the big docks of those stories, not really the churches and the amount of people and and, and the fact that, that, that people are engaging Jesus in that sense, but the fact that people called ones who see themselves as part of that ministry now see themselves as agents of transformation in the city. And that was the big thing for us. That was the big, um, that was the, the, the big work of God that we saw, that people were no longer attending church, but people were seeing themselves as the church in their everyday workspaces. Um, and, uh, 10 years into that journey, Sheree and I, um, really felt the call of God to come here to London, to the United Kingdom, and we planted a church. We, we started a church with six people in our living room, and, uh, we've been going for a number of years now. Currently, we're, we're finding ourselves in the borough of Kingston. Um, And it's an incredible joy to see the the same thing happening in in, in our congregation currently there. How people are starting to see themselves as agents of God's transformation in education, in the arts, in media, in sport, in government. We currently have somebody in the church who's just rose up to the call of of, of government. And um, especially in a time like this, it's good to see Christian people. Um, you know, stepping up to the plate, the fact is, um, you know, we, um, we find ourselves in a place, and, and just as we were worshipping this morning, I felt really just to encourage you you know that God sees this church in, perhaps um, in a different from a different perspective than what you see it. You know, I don't know what I don't know how do you look at life? I don't know how you think about this morning. I don't know how you think about your engagement in this church. But when God looks at you, he sees a body of people who are righteous. You know the cross of Jesus was a success. <laughs> Come on, you know, as as much as we know that England won the game on Thursday night 7-0. It was a success. Okay, it was a successful Venture. Um, the, the tricky one was the rugby a few weeks ago. Okay, that, that, that one will bring a few contention, and my, my, you know, I can see my father-in-law waving his fist at me. We were actually supporting England in the morning because we really thought they were going to beat South Africa. And then, yeah, okay, the rest uh, remains. But here's, here's the thing: the cross of Jesus was a success. Do you realize that nothing we do or don't do can add or subtract to the success of that moment? It was a success. God sees, looks at this church. He looks at the people of God in this church and thinks of you as righteous. He thinks of you as a resurrected church. You know, when you think about Jesus, one of the biggest lies that we can believe is that the death and the resurrection of Jesus was about Jesus only. The death of Jesus did not just reposition Jesus, it repositioned all of humanity. The moment Jesus was raised from the dead, it wasn't just Jesus that was raised from the dead. He raised the entire mankind out of its state of death and, and, and destruction that sin had brought upon us. And then when Jesus ascended to sit at the right hand of God, that is where we find ourselves now. It wasn't just Jesus that ascended to the right hand of God, you and I ascended to the right hand of God. We are repositioned in Christ. Come on. And I know that, I know because I'm privy to some information, I know that over the last few months you guys have been spending some time in Revelations chapter 19 verse 10. And can I read this to you quickly just to remind you, you know, it's, it's the part where John the Apostle you know, it has this magnificent revelation of, of Jesus. And, and he's, you know, and, and whilst he's busy there, an angel also appears to him. And he falls down at the angel's feet. And the angel says to him, do not worship me because I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And then the angel encourages him and says, worship God. And then he makes this little comment. And I love this little statement. He says, the spirit... Uh, The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Um, In other words, if you want to know if Jesus is present in a place, what you look for is the spirit of prophecy. If we had to flip that around, if you saw the spirit of prophecy present, then you would also know that Jesus is present. And what prophecy is, it's not necessarily me telling you things about your future or a word of knowledge. Or It's not necessarily that, because part of that is prophecy. But prophecy is really the revelation of Christ in a given situation. A few weeks ago, I heard a story about a teacher. She loves teaching, but she hates the staff room. Okay, How many of you are engaged in education? Hands up. Well, yeah, there's a few of you. She, she loves teaching. She loves the kids, but she hates the staff room. And you know why she hates the staff room? Because of the milk. So people come into the staff room. They're making themselves a cup of tea. And you know, at the beginning of the week, everybody buys a, 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 you know, a pint of milk, and they write their name on it, Yanni. And they put it in the fridge. And then somebody else comes, and they've forgotten to buy milk, and they run out of milk. And so they think, oh, if I just take a little bit of Yanni's milk, he won't notice. And so do seven other people. And then when I get to make my cup of tea, you know, there's no milk left. And she was livid. She couldn't handle the staff room. So she prayed about it. And all that the Holy Spirit said to her was buy a, a, you know, buy a pint of milk and write on it, everyone. And the whole atmosphere in the staff room changed. Why? Because Jesus was revealed. A sense of gratitude, a sense of generosity the generosity of God that changes a situation. I want to remind you just of a few things. A few, um, you know, a, a, a few months ago, a very big research group, the Barna Re- Research Group, did a, a research on, on 5,000 Christians. They took 5,000 people who said that they know Jesus Christ, and they did a survey on their lives and asked them about their work-life space. Now, if I use the word work, I, I recognize that in the room today there might be students, there might be retired people, there might be, you know, uh, stay-at-home moms. Um, and so when I use the word work, I'm using it in the sense of what do you do from a Monday morning until, you know, a Friday afternoon? What What is that part of your life that that you are engaged in? And they took 5,000 surveys of people's work-life space. And they asked them a few things, and this was the interesting feedback. They said that 34% of the people that filled out those questionnaires came back and said that they have no connection between what happens on a Sunday morning in their faith and what happens in a Monday morning in their work-life space. 34%. Here was the other scary thing, that another 38%, now this is 72% of people that they researched, 38% of them said that we were onlookers. We were passive, but we were positioned to connect faith to work life, but we never did. So we knew about it, we were aware of it, but we never did. 72% of those 5,000 Christians said, Either we don't connect faith and work at all, or we know that we can, but we don't do it. And only 28% of those people said that we know how to actively integrate our faith into our work-life space. Now, if we had to do a quick survey along this room, that would mean that seven out of every ten people that we counted would fall into the area that's how massive it is. Seven out of ten people in this room would not have the capacity to connect what happens here on a Sunday into what happens on a Monday. It's huge. If we look at the example of Jesus, out of the 132 public engagements of Jesus, do you know that only ten of them were not related to a work-life space? <laughs> That means that 92% of Jesus' public ministry moments were related to a work-life space. He even told stories like that. He told stories about fishermen, about farmers, about business owners, about coins, about pubs. Eh? <laughs> as a matter of fact, you found him more in the pub than what you found him in the synagogue. That's why they referred to him as a, as a, as a you know, wine bibber. Come on. Do you know that 92% of Jesus' life, his public engagement happened outside of what we know as church life? If you think about the stories that he told, 42 out of the 52 parables that Jesus told were in the context of our work-life space it was consistent in the New Testament with the New Testament church. Um, Out of the 40 miracles that we read in the New Testament book of Acts, 39 of them happened in the marketplace and not in the synagogue. Only one of them happened at the gates of the synagogue. All the rest were in work-life spaces. And you know what I find fascinating about the modern-day church? Is that we gather in a moment like this, and we expect God to show up. And this becomes the sum total of our experience of Jesus Christ in our lives. And the minute we step out, we step out into something we call life. And then we're not really expecting God to show up in some or other significant way of form. It's crazy. Let me tell you, it's crazy. And what I want to share on this morning with you, I, 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 want to, I want to share with you about two cities that you see in scripture. You see Jerusalem and you see Babylon. Jerusalem was the city of God. Uh, if you if you broke down the word Jerusalem, Jerusalem it, it means the, the Place of the peace of God, the place of the wholeness of God. And somehow, you know, when we think about the church, we, we, we think about the experience of Jerusalem. This is the place of the peace of God. And then when we go out of the doors, we enter into something that we sometimes think of as Babylon. And I'm not saying the world out there is Babylon, but somehow in our minds, we shift these two things apart. And we have Jerusalem on one end and we have Babylon on the other end. And we when you read Scripture, something very interesting happens. Read this portion of Scripture with me in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 4 to 7. It says, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. <laughs> have you ever thought about that? God sent them there. He sent them into Babylon. And then he says, Build houses there and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord for it on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. It's crazy. If you seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which God has sent you, then it will bring peace and prosperity to you. You know, so often we pray for the welfare of the church. God says, no, 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 there's a different order here. Pray for the welfare of your city, because in the welfare of your city, your church will also have peace. We read in Scripture about a young man called Daniel. Who found, it, who found the capacity to thrive in a place called Babylon. Now, You know, when, when my, dad, my dad grew up Greek Orthodox, and so he knew about Jesus. He didn't really know Jesus himself. He knew about Jesus, moves to South Africa, and then in a service where a, a huge evangelist one day preaches. I was four years old. My dad comes to know Jesus, and so does my mom. And so from the age of four, I went to to church with my parents, and I went to Sunday school, and we would go to Sunday school, and I'd learn about this guy in the Bible called Daniel. Have you ever heard of him? And, and, and I was this high, and we'd learn the stories about how Daniel, you know, refused to eat the king's food. And, and, and he, you know, and he became a great leader. And, and then he was thrown into the lion's den. And, and, and we have these romantic ideas of the this, of this story of Daniel. But can I just really paint the picture for you this morning? Can you imagine Daniel, a young man with a bright, bright future in Israel? Um, the the, the place where he was placed, he was probably noble and a member of the royal household. He would have been very attractive. Otherwise, Nebuchadnezzar would not have put his finger on him. Very attractive, handsome young man. But, But yet this king comes, and in one night, this man's life changes. In one night, the king of Babylon comes in, and he takes them away. He, this young man who was the cream of the crop, who had his life planned out for him. I mean, this is like future stuff. And in one moment, that changes. Come on, for who of you has that been the, the case in this room? In one moment, your life changed. That which you thought was, is now no longer. And this king, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, <laughs> he hauls off these young men. He was a godless King, Probably den- demonic in nature. And he takes these young men, the cream of the crop, into this hostile environment. As a matter of fact, the fact that he calls Daniel uh, Balthazar. Balthazar was, was the son of a demonic god called Marduk. Can you imagine being Daniel, the God is my judge man, this guy with a future, and suddenly you're the son of a demon. You're being called the son of a demon. This is how this young man's life was changed. Uh, I think an untold part of the story was the fact that he was emasculated. You, you know, he had, he had to survive the indignity of castration. And, and whilst the Bible doesn't say that about Daniel, it does say that that was the environment that he functioned in. And, and the place that he served in within Nebuchadnezzar's household would have demanded that of him. no longer the romantic story i grew up with it's no longer the the, the the notion of this you know here's the christian and he's living up you know he's lifting up the banner and it's rah, rah, god here in babylon this is a completely different scenario can, can i tell you where i'm heading with this message this morning because here's what i find frustrating is that very often we find christian people who only survive babylon they do not Thrive in Babylon. And if I read Jeremiah, if I see the picture that the scripture paints for us, then he says, listen, church, I want you to thrive. In Babylon, I want you to thrive in environments that seem hostile, that seem that is that that, as if it wants to steal from you, as if it wants to rob and take away, as if it wants to reposition your life. and And God says, "I, I do not want you to survive that. I want you to thrive in that. And here's why that is important for us to know this morning. Because what Babylon does, in essence, it tests the authenticity of our faith (laughs) you know tests are for our benefit sometimes I, i hear christians speak about tests in a way that they say you know god wants to test you so that he can see what's in your heart the fact is god knows what's in my heart he doesn't have to test that the reason why i sometimes end up going through tests is not so that god can know what's in my heart so that i can know what is in my heart And and here's the thing therein lies the important principle that those who walk away from God in anger and in disillusionment in the midst of their suffering do so not because their test was too hard, they do so because their faith was not authentic. And in the day and age that you and I live in, we find a lot of things that we you know connect our lives to, and we think this is faith. This is authentic faith. Let me give you two examples. Here's the first one: good intentions. Let me tell you, good intentions will not make you thrive in Babylon. A lot of Christians live with good intentions. You know, they have high moral standards. They have a fast start that this causes us to have some kind of a spiritual confidence. But let me tell you, if people follow, really follow Jesus, um, some of them are going to come to Jesus like the rich young man did and and, and said, you know, what must I do to follow you? And Jesus says, I want you to give everything away, sell all your goods, goods, you know, give the money to the poor and then come and follow me. And never does that young man return because good intentions does not cut it. You know, you can, I, I see many good Christian people sit in, in services like this on a Sunday morning and with good intention make really good decisions and never go out of the door and do actually do those things. Here's one of my favorite parables Five wise birds sit on a wire. Have you ever heard this parable before? Okay, it wasn't one that Jesus told. I can see some of you are thinking, oh, five wise birds. I don't Five wise birds sit on, a, sit on a wire and one of them decides to fly away. How many birds are left on the wire? Four. Five birds are left on the wire. Do you know why? Because one has only decided to fly away. <laughs> Good intentions. Let me tell you, if you're a bird on the wire and you've made this, some decisions and Babylon comes your way you will not thrive you might not even survive here's the second counterfeit faith that i sometimes experience is high moral standards the first one, you know, is good intentions. The second one is high moral standards. You know, think people think because I'm a Christian, I live with high moral standards. And let me tell you, as a Christian, I think Scripture expects that from us. Scripture looks at our lives and says this, and something of the character of Christ needs to be seen in you. And 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 so we live with this high moral standard. But let me tell you, I know a lot of Muslim people, I know a lot of Hindu people, I know a lot of people without faith that live at a very high moral standard. Mm-hmm. A few few months ago, um, one of my, uh, my our youngest um, son gets invited for a play date at a Muslim family um, in, in, in the school that he goes to. So he's, so he's off and goes and has a play date at the Muslim family. And afterwards, um, the mom, when she drops uh, Leighton off at home, she takes Sheree aside. And she says, so listen, we had a little situation at dinner time. And so Sheree's all nervous and I'm like, oh, you yeah, what, you know. So she says, I, I asked Leighton, um, you know, did he have, does he have any allergies? Because I just want to make sure that I don't give him any dinner food. That is a, and apparently, Leighton just looked at her and said, we're Christians. We don't have any allergies. <laughs> Which is a completely different discussion. <laughs> but here's the thing. You know, if you're, if you're building life just on good intentions and high moral standards... You're in trouble because there's something much deeper that becomes the foundation on which we build when we want to thrive in Babylon. And this is not just willpower. You know, it's not just, you know, I'm going to try harder. It's not me just going to, you know, I'm going to give it my best shot. This is me deeply recognizing that the battle has been won. Come on. You know, it's me settling it in my spirit that it was his obedience that redefined me. Can I, can I ask you something quickly? Have you ever thought about why, why do we call ourselves sinners? Why did we call ourselves sinners? Just think about that for a moment. Did we call ourselves sinners because we sinned? Or were we called sinners because Adam sinned? Come on. It wasn't your sinful deeds that positioned you as a sinner. It was because of the disobedience of one man that all of humanity was repositioned into a reference of a fallen state where our mind has been dulled to the reality of who we truly are. Come on. And let me tell you, as much as we receive that, As much as we recognize that we have been sinners, not because we sinned, but because Adam sinned. Let me tell you, because of the obedience of one man. (laughs) Come on. It's not your righteous deeds that now make you righteous. It is because of the righteousness of God. God, that you have been declared righteous. And you have to get rid of this old way of thinking. You have to get rid of this thing that I, you know, Jesus died and now I'm going to give it my best shot. I'm going to attempt to live as righteous as I possibly can. No. Jesus looks at you and he says, you are righteous. Not because you have done righteous deeds, but because you have been declared righteous by my son. Now, we have the privilege and the power to outwork this righteousness. Uh. The battle has been won. It's not me giving it my best shot. You know, Jesus didn't 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 um he didn't uh, test your design. He wasn't you know wasn't experimenting with how he created you. He fashioned he fashioned you according to the blueprint. His son Jesus is not an example just for us. He's an example of us he's an example of somebody who on earth discovered his true identity and destiny in his father and he now outlived that and we look at that reference and we say what a beautiful life that is and god says you have the potential to live in the same way i read the story a few months ago i was absolutely fascinated by this look at this photo on the screen of a guy called Hiro Onoda. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Hiro Onoda was um, a Japanese Imperial Army intelligence officer, and he fought in World War II. He had not heard in 1945 that the war had ended. So he firmly stood his ground and protected his post on a little Japanese island that his commanding officer gave him to protect together with a platoon of soldiers. And in 1945, the war ended, and the message reached them in, in, in this little island, and he refused to believe it. He said it was fake news. <laughs> I've heard somebody else say that recently. can't remember. And listen to this. <laughs> He stays on that island until March the 9th, 1974. And he protects this post. Eventually, some of the soldiers die. He retreats into the jungles of this Japanese island. They've dropped leaflets. He refuses to believe the leaflets. They send people to come and tell him that the war is ended. He kills them. In guerrilla warfare. (laughs) And for a period from 1945 until 1974, this guy fights a war that ended in 1945. (laughs) It's crazy. I know Christians like that. They fight as if Jesus is not one. They battle as if Jesus has not done it all. Come on. He said, It is finished. And on this day, March the 9th, 1974, they dress up his commanding officer who was fortunately still alive. They send him down to this Japanese island. He goes into the jungle. He finds him, and he brings him out. And here on this picture below, he hands him his ceremonial sword with 500 rounds of ammunition, his rifle that he had that was still in working order, and his dagger in its white case and saluted the flag of his nation and then surrendered. Crazy. We look at this and we think, how on earth is it possible? When for 2,000 years Christians live as if Jesus did not did this, done this on our behalf. Listen to what 1 Peter 1 verse 7 says. I want to read this portion of scripture here. I think it's on the screen, Ben, if you want to add that over. It says, This will help you in those difficult times, says Peter. Think of your faith as something much more precious than any possible evaluation of gold. Remember that fire does not destroy the metal. (laughs) It reveals it. Fire does not destroy the metal. You know, maybe some of you are sitting here and you're in a work situation, a physical work situation where you feel you know, that, that, that this this situation is killing you. It's just like Babylon is it's ungodly. It's not this should. Can I tell you that what that situation does to you, it does not destroy the gold of your faith that is inside of you. It just brings it to the fore. Come on. It shows this world that Jesus Christ has been victorious, and that's why you can thrive in Babylon. Listen to how beautiful he says this. It reveals it now. Even gold is an inferior Comparison To your faith gold as a currency has only temporal and unpredictable value it fluctuates as the market changes now in the same way that fire reveals gold your authentic faith makes Jesus Christ visible and gives much reason to result in even more praise and glory and honor Jesus, thank you Jesus. Yeah, can I tell you there's a there's a there's a level of faith that is much higher than your faith in God. There's a level of faith that re- that redefines and defines your life that far supersedes the way that you believe in God. Because the way we believe in God, you know, on a Sunday morning, we're there. On a Monday morning, trouble strikes and we're there. You know, by Wednesday morning, we might be over there. I'm not quite sure. You know, Wednesday afternoon, evening, you're in the life group, and then, then it goes up again. By Sunday morning, it's down there. The poor worship team has to work your way up to just get it there. You know, I'm doing my best at the moment to help you. <laughs> And this is how we this is how we work with our faith. But let me tell you, there's a faith that supersedes that. And it's not your faith in him, it's his faith in you. He believes more in you than what you could ever believe in him. And if we can recognize that, if we can recognize that we can live from that premise, and that we can live life from that premise. And that whatever situation we find ourselves in, we don't have to survive this. We can Thrive in this. Hmm. Jeez. Thank you, Jesus. Don't you just want to say that with me? Thank you, Jesus. You know, God, God didn't throw this at us and say, you know, go on, give it your best shot. I hope you guys make it. And now he's just sitting around waiting in heaven to see how we're going to get around and do this. He made it possible for us to live this life. His his faith in us, his righteousness, his victory, his obedience. Come on. (laughs) And all that we now have the privilege of is to outwork this. (laughs) How beautiful. Something needs to happen in your mind. Something needs to happen in the way you think about life and the way you think about where you find yourself. Listen to, to this very, very, very well-known portion of Scripture in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He says, do not conform any longer to this world. You know, every time I read this, and I read this verse a lot, believe me, I do. But every time I read it, something out of this jumps at me. Why does he say, do not conform to the, to the pattern of this world? Why does he say, do not conform? Do you know why? Because it's possible it's possible that you and I can conform our thinking to a level of thinking that does not resemble heaven. It does not represent the place that you and I have been birthed from. Can you you just think about this for a moment? Before creation. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In absolute union. There was so much value and honor in that relationship. The father honoring the son. The son honoring the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit honoring the father. This sense of joy and celebration that comes from perfect peace and perfect relationship. And the more value and honor in this relationship, the more the joy became. And the more joy they had, the more honor and value there is. And the more precious this became, this relationship of joy, this relationship of honor, that it eventually culminates into this moment where God the Father shouts out across the universe at more than three hundred and twenty kilometers per hour he shouts let there be light come on and then he creates and out of the dust he picks up this handful of dust and he says let us make man Let us create mankind in our image and in our likeness. And then he breathes on the soil. And something miraculous happens. And Adam and Eve find themselves in the space of absolute joy and harmony. Come on. Can you imagine the moment that Adam is is, is created and he rubs the dust out of his eyes Uh, Can you imagine, and here's the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and they're peering over what's going to happen, you know. and, And as Adam opens up his eyes, the first image imprinted on his mind is the image of his Father and his likeness, his brother, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who is the companion. Come on, this is his first image. And then God creates out of the rib of Adam. He creates Eve. And I don't, you know, I don't quite know if Adam was right there at the moment. But I think, you know, as Eve rubbed the dust out of her eyes, the first image imprinted on her mind was not Adam. The first image imprinted on her was her father. And then, come on, like any good father would have done, he would have held out his hand and he would have walked her down the aisle as the wedding march played. And Adam said, wow. This is where we created from. This is where we come from. You know, no wonder we are faith compatible. No wonder we are joy compatible. No wonder we are peace compatible. No wonder we, you know, we sing the song so easily because it's worry that is foreign to our design, it is fear that is foreign. To our design. That's why it makes you sick in your body when you are fearful. Because it's not part of what you were created from. You were created from this household of joy. And now Paul echoes these thoughts. Come on. Thousands of years later, he writes this letter to Romans. And he says, do not conform your thinking to a lifestyle and a life that would destroy you and that would have you think less of you than what God has created you from. Jeez. I'd like to end off with a personal story and then, well, maybe two stories. For many years, Sheree and I struggled with infertility in our home. We had our eldest son, we struggled for about two years. Had our eldest son, we, we felt that there were going to be more kids. We, we ended up going for tests. Doctors said, we're not quite sure how you got the first one. We'd, we'd suggest you celebrate him and enjoy life. We had to make a decision in that moment whether we were going to receive this word, this report, or whether we're going to trust God. And somewhere along this journey, one day, um and i won't tell you the long story it's been it's it's very cryptic and very short. One day I open up our bank account and there's a sum of money paid into our bank account. We didn't know up until today we don't know where that money comes from. Shar and I'd never considered medically assisted processes as part of our pregnancy journey we'd, we'd never thought about that. For ethical reasons, for moral reasons, for mostly financial reasons. So we we, we sat down and said, "This and we don't really need anything at the moment." we you know it's not as you know what are we going to do with this money? And out of the blue, we decided, "Why don't we find out about fertility processes?" We contacted the doctor the very next day. She she got an appointment. Oh, it's something just in that. So we go off to this appointment. I'm, th- I'm sitting there thinking, I've, I've got one question I'm going to ask the doctor today. Sheree had about 20. Okay. Yeah. I had one question. My question was, how much is this going to cost? And when he goes through his whole story, I ask him, how much is this going to cost? And the, he says, we're not exactly sure. It depends on medication and stuff. But if I had to give you a ballpark figure, this is the amount, and it's the exact amount that was paid into our bank. I'm thinking, okay, so we ask, okay, we're going to go ahead with this. And, I mean, within a few days, we were in the, in the, in the system and, and they were running the tests and everything else. And eventually, they plant uh, five, I think it was three. They plant three, they called it sister blasts, planted them back into charades. And now it's a week we wait. You must know God had provided the money. God had answered every prayer. There were were markers along this journey that we'd asked God for. And so it's a Tuesday morning. We're all excited. We're waiting to hear. And we get the phone call from the doctors. They've done some tests. And the doctor says, Sheree's not pregnant. It was probably one of the most difficult days in our family. My mother-in-law, she and my father-in-law lead a congregation. They, they lead a church in, in another city of in South Africa. My mom-in-law gets into the car and she drives over to us. And she, she sits us down at our kitchen table. And she sat me on this side of the table. She sits Sheree down on the other side of the table. And I'll never forget it. Sheree charade had had tears squirting out of her eyes. <laughs> I don't know if, if, don't know if that's possible, but I can remember these tears were squirting out of her eyes. And my, my mom-in-law's opening line is this. I want you to say, God is good. And with tears streaming down her eyes, you know, the cheek, Sheree says these words, God is good. And I'm sitting on the opp- opposite side of the table thinking to myself, are you crazy? Have you lost the plot? Do you know what has just happened here? But that was the Romans 12 moment in our family. We've had many more, but there was one specific moment where we could have chosen, how do I align my thinking in this moment? Am I going to align my thinking to the fact that I know where I come from and what God has established on my behalf? Or will you, like I did around that table, sit there that day thinking, are you crazy? I will not. And I said it. I said it out loud. I'm sorry. I cannot say that now. And I will not. And it took me two years. I was in the ministry. It took me two years to allow God to access that space in my thinking. But that was a defining moment. Within weeks after that, Sheree, in her faith, was flourishing. She was standing. She was firm. She was moving ahead. She was trusting God. She was, you know, she was moving ahead. And here I was. I was angered. I was angry at God. I was, you know, a disillusioned. I I, I felt I no longer, you know, here I am. And, and, And that was this moment when Paul says, listen, I do not want you to conform your thinking, but I want you to be renewed. I want you to be renewed, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Then you will be able to do what is the will of God, that a good and pleasing will, perfect will of God. God, come on. And this is what happens to us. I want to tell you a second little story. Here's a photo of our three little boys. We went out um, into Surrey last year when the snow came down. So and and we, we recently moved house. And so we... In one of the boxes that we found in the house was this book, The Dangerous Book for Boys. I don't know how many of you ever know that, 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 um, have ever seen that book, but I believe every boy on the planet should have a book like that. Okay? Go and buy your grandsons and your children one of those books. There's one for girls as well, but I don't have girls in my house, so that was a non-issue. But we have four boys. And so a few years ago, a number of years ago, I bought this book for Malin. And he was reading it and reading and reading and ended up in a box as he grew older. And now the three little ones, because later God answered our prayer. Okay? You clearly see that. The, that moment there around the kitchen table wasn't the end of the journey for us. And now these three budding boys are in our house and they discover this book. And f- for some other reason, for weeks on end, they read this book. It tells you how to play poker, okay? It doesn't do any underage drinking, so relax. Uh, but it tells you how to play poker. It tells you how to build a trap for a rat. It tells you how to fall out of trees and go hiking. It tells you how to work a compass. It's just one of those books. You have to, a boy has to have a book. It tells you how to manage a girl on a date, right? Open the door for her and pay the bill. Um, <laughs> and all the girls are going, yeah. So they're reading this book. And one day, I come home, Sheree, and they, they're standing at the door waiting for us. Can we have a family meeting, please? So, okay, so now we're off to the kitchen. Now, at that stage, Malin had just gone off to Southampton to the university. So his room in our house is now empty. Okay? So now they've figured it out. They were, can, if we can move Brayden to Malin's room, then Joanne can go to Brayden's room, and Leighton can be in this, and everybody's got their own room. But now, why do you want to give Brayden this specific room now so now because they've got a plan in the dangerous book of boys they've read how to build a zip wire and they've figured out that if we gave in this room he could build we could build a zip wire from his room which is on the first floor all across the garden to the back shed and then if we positioned the trampoline right they could at any moment let go of the zip wire to fall onto the trampoline. And all I have to do is just say yes. <laughs> I mean, they've got the list. The book says, here's the list of things you need. We can go off to B&Q right now and go and get the stuff if, if I'm happy with this. Um, I, all I have to do is just say yes. <laughs> now, you, you can see where I'm heading with this. If three little boys... Can throw their life at a book so strongly that they're convinced this is going to work. All I have to do is say yes. How much more, come on. How much more can the people of God not throw themselves on his opinion of us? Come on. To be renewed in our mind. To stand firm. Here's the last scripture I want to read bef- to you before, before we just go into time of ministry. Remember the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He has, he has, he has three friends of Daniel. King's servants hated them because they were thriving in Babylon. So they work out this plan. They build the statue, massive statue of gold. Say, we're going to blow the trumpets. And then, king, you must have all the people bow down. As a matter of fact, when, when we'll see if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego actually get to do this. So everybody's there. I'm not quite sure how it worked. But all the people are there, and the trumpets blow, and everybody bows down. And the only three standing, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. The servants of the king run to him, and they say to him these words, They pay no attention to your majesty. I love that. They pay no attention to you. They neither serve you nor your gods. And then the king calls him closer and says, okay, I'm going to fire up the furnace seven more times. I didn't even know that was possible, <laughs> to fire up a furnace seven more times. I mean, how did he know that? You know, did he, I, I don't know, did he have a thermometer? And I'm not quite sure. But he fires this thing up. And then he says, I'm going to give you one more chance. I want you to bow down. I want you to bow down before this, this, this idol that I've built. If you do not, it's into the fire. And then they answer him with these words. They say, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. Just just consider this for this moment. They say, if, if you serve, if, if this is what you do, we recognize the way we view life is that God is able. Remember what the friends, the, the other servants said to the king. They said, they pay no attention to you. This is about what they're thinking. This is about what they're allowing their minds to be filled with. And so, so he says, they're, they're paying no attention to you. He says, listen, I'm going to throw you in the fire. They say, we know our God is able. That's what they were filling their mind with. That's what they were filling their mind with. And then they say to him this word. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, <laughs> that we will not serve your gods. Neither will we bow down to the images of gold that you have set up. What are they saying to Nebuchadnezzar? Saying we will not allow thinking space. So whether he, whether he does or whether he does not, Our mindset remains the same. He is able. Come on. Because the problem is, sometimes he does and other times he does not. Three years ago, three and a half years ago, my parents came to visit us from South Africa. Stood in our lounge. Sheree looks at my dad and says, listen, something's not right with you. And after a few days of visiting with us, we'd take him off to Epsom Hospital. They'd run some tests on him. They'd diagnose him with pancreatic cancer. And I'll never forget the day in our study, in our house, where he fell down on his knees. and said, don't you guys want to pray with me? I want to see my grandkids grow older. We prayed over him, and then we buried him four months later. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, our God is able to deliver us. But if he does not, we will still not give you thinking space. We will still not pay attention to you. We will still recognize he is able. Because that's the story of our lives. Come on, Forest Hill, that's the calling of our lives. The question is, how do we connect Monday and Sunday how do, we, how do we move beyond the parameters of being a people who only expect God to show up on a Sunday? And praise him. He does. He comes. He ministers. People are healed. People's lives are changed. We just heard the stories again, you know, of, of, of Stevie telling this, this young man and, and, and this young man saying, you know, four months ago, I didn't even know about God or church. Now I'm praying. Come on. That's beautiful but if we don't have the capacity to connect that, if that young man does not recognize that he's an agent of God sent into his school, you know, that that, that leaves our faith only at a Sunday, there's something that needs to transform us. It brings us into this place where we know not survive Babylon, but we thrive Babylon. It's God's desire for you. I'd love to pray for people this morning, and I'm I'm just going to ask you, by just by show of hands, if you, if, as a matter of fact, if you want to say something in this word has deeply touched me today, I want to be included in this moment. Don't you want to stand? Don't you want to stand just where you are? Don't you want to stand? Father, thank you that we can declare in this moment, God is able. <laughs> Regardless of the situations we face, regardless of the, 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 the position we find ourselves in, regardless of the moment that def, try to define us, the thing that might have tried to distract our attention or try to pull our energy away or, or perhaps even came unexpectedly, we weren't expecting this thing to come. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. This moment you are faithful. You are faithful, Lord. You are faithful. Your promise stands true. Your cross was a success. We say thank you. Can I invite you Just to say that. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you. Your cross was a success. Your cross was a success. Thank you, Lord. 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 And Lord, as I pray over these men and women standing at this moment, I pray that they would, they would, they would have a see that they have the capacity to receive something from you today. They have the capacity to receive a renewed mind. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are working in them so that you can work through them. Thank you, Lord, that even in this moment your word is washing away old mindsets that have kept them, uh, that have kept them captive, that have kept them perhaps even in a place where they, where they find themselves limited. They find themselves as if their arms can't move. They're, they're inhibited. Thank you, Lord, that in this moment... Freedom comes in Jesus' name. Freedom comes in Jesus' name. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit. In this moment, you release the shackles or feet that they can see themselves run. That they can see themselves run with freedom and liberty. This thing will no longer inhibit or intimidate them, Lord. Thank you that they see a change in this. This fiery furnace will no longer intimidate. Our God is able. Our God. God is able our god is able our god is able thank you jesus thank you jesus in this moment you remove fear lord in this moment you remove fear you remove fear you replace it with courage lord you replace it with courage in this moment you remove intimidation and you replace it with boldness of your kingdom thank you lord you replace it with boldness in this moment you remove worry and distraction lord and you replace it with focus and clarity thank you lord in this moment you remove bitterness and anger bitterness and anger you take it away holy spirit you take it away does not belong to us and you replace it with your wholeness and with your peace Thank you, Lord, that a new sense and faith for your provision rises up in people. This thing that they thought was not possible, thank you, Lord, you see, you make them see this morning it is possible. All things with you are possible. We thank you for that, Jesus. We thank you for that, Jesus, in your name. Thank you that we can pray this in your name, not in the name of the Forest Hill Community Church or Doxadeo or any organization. We pray it in the name of Jesus, the name that is above all names, the Lord of all, the king. King of kings, we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Can I invite you to say with me, amen. Amen. Let it be so.